Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast, Earth Day 2023 edition. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' environmental lug nuts. It's time for an overall. Let's do it. to the Life 2.0 podcast all over planet Earth. By the way, this is the only planet we have. I don't care what else we try to go and explore. Basically, this is home. And that's what this show is about. Um, getting ready for this Saturday morning podcast. I, I knew it was Earth Day, obviously. And my uh, degree is actually environmental communication and interpretation, which is a, deg- a degree I designed myself uh, based on what I saw going on around me when I was a lot younger than I am now. Uh, and back then it looked pretty difficult. Now these days it's increased even more. So I find myself with uh, application of this degree that I uh, that I designed and uh, have a bachelor's in. And really it came down to the fact that I knew on some weird, strange, inherent level that as the years were going to go on, our attention spans were going to get less and less because of the bombardment of information that's on us. It can only take so much. And how do I take massive amounts of information, important information, I believe, and distill those down into bite-sized bits so we can move forward and at least have some sort of consciousness about our home, Earth. And that really is at the crux of all of it for me. I was driving somewhere this past week and I saw a rare sight, somebody throwing garbage out the window of their car. And it was such an affront to me because you don't see that anymore that I thought, what kind of consciousness does it take to just throw stuff out the window. When I was growing up as a kid, that was prevalent. I mean, it was not uncommon to be at a stoplight or a stop sign or what have you, and somebody opened the door and dumped their ashtray on the street. Or they'd go through a drive-through fast food restaurant, eat it, and stuff would just go out the window. It really happened. Then, of course, came the whole environmental movement of the the late 60s, early 70s, brought about, I think, as the pinnacle was the Cuyahoga River, I believe, in 1969 in Ohio, had so much shit in it, it caught fire one day. Land of the free, home of the brave, right? America, the bountiful and plentiful and full of garbage. And I think that was kind of the wick that got lit that really started to some greater degree, not a lesser degree, a greater degree, the push to clean our act up. And it was in 1970 when Richard Nixon created the EPA, which was really, quite frankly, even I'll give old tricky dick, I am not a crook, credit for doing that. It was in response to the environmental things that were going on. Richard Nixon, in no way, shape, or form, was an environmentalist, but he's a politician. And they needed to do something, otherwise he's out of office and it's his ass. And so the EPA was created. Good thing. It's still around. It's not as it once was, but you know, it's, at least it's not in the headlines anymore that it's somehow this corrupt, horrible organization. Anybody who's doing things to put a... Uh, what do I want to say? Kind of an, an, an eye on places that aren't, that aren't often looked at, especially when it comes to corporate polluting. You know, we have to have that in place. I don't care how that works. I'm glad that it does. So this particular show today uh, is about consciousness more than anything else. At one point during the week getting ready for this show, I thought, well, I could come up with a list of 47. And by the way, 47 is my favorite number for as long as I can remember. I've been saying 47, 47 this, 47 that. I don't know where it comes from. Bear with me. I could come up with a list of 47 
horrible things going on with the environment, and I can come up with another list of 47 things that are great about the environment, things we've turned around. I don't want to talk about that. You can go find that on your own if you choose to. The only reason you would is if you have a consciousness about it. For me, that's where it all begins and ends. Whatever consciousness this person had in the car in front of me to finish whatever they're eating and just throw it out the window tells me pretty much how they live their life, how they see the world. Now, that might be a blanket statement, but actions speak louder than words, do they not? So I'm remembering my dad today of, of a guy who was unconscious to some great degree when it came to environmental things back in the 60s and 70s, like many people were. It's just the way it was. Um, and my dad would change his oil every change of the seasons. Just the way he's a clockwork guy. So he'd drag out this big can. He'd put the car up on the curb in front of our house. He'd slide this big long can that was cut open uh, and, and try to catch as much oil as he could. But inevitably, a lot of it would go on the ground. And he would just take out the garden hose and wash it. Or if it was in the wintertime, he'd just leave it there. It's just, it's just the street. There's a sewer here for a reason. It all gets taken care of. I will never forget, probably late 60s, not much long after that Cuyahoga River thing was all over the news, that I remember my dad getting ready to change the oil and, and going out to help him like I usually did and watching him hose down the oil into the sewer. And I said, Dad, where does that oil go? Well, it goes into the sewer. Like I'm an idiot. That's right there. It goes into the sewer. Yeah, but where does it go after that? Well, it goes into the sewer and then somebody takes care of it. Well, who takes care of it, Dad? My dad knew who to. The sewer guy takes care of it, son. And so this conversation kind of went back and forth. And I said, isn't this is, you know, part of the reason that the river burned, Dad? People, And by this point, my dad had more than enough. Not that I was wrong or even irritating, but he didn't have answers for me. And he says, but it's just one guy putting it in. It's not that bad. And then, you know, of course, I had this epiphany. Like, well, but what if there's a thousand dads in Chicago changing their oil today? Where, where does all that go? And I think that perspective had an effect on my dad because the next time he went out and we went out to change the oil in his car, he didn't lose a drop. But what he did do is save it in cans and put it on our front porch. So now we got this oil that's been through this car. Back then, oil was not what it is today. There was no synthetic oil. This was heavy duty, you know, run it till it bleeds out of your engine kind of stuff. And so it got started to get stored under our porch. Not great either. But back then, there wasn't a whole lot of oil recycling things. There was certainly nothing like a Jiffy Lube. Those came a little later. I can't even imagine my dad letting somebody else change the oil. It just wasn't done. It's like pumping your own gas. Who did that? So... Eventually, that changed too, and he found some place to take it. I think it was the, the Korean gas station a few blocks away said they'd take it, you know, and I don't know what they did with it. Could have dumped it in the alley for all I know. But it was a progression. It was a progression of consciousness for my dad, who I think was like most people and still are like most people, out of sight, out of mind. Everything's okay here? What's the problem? That, that, that oil burning in the river, that's way over in Ohio. It's nothing to do with Chicago. It has everything to do with Chicago because it has to do with consciousness. So on one level, we've come out of some really difficult times environmentally. You know, the, the industrial revolution uh, just used everything as a sewer for the most part. You know, I mean, it just, it's just everywhere. And on the other hand, 
we've cleaned up a lot of that crap. And on another hand, if you had three hands, we're going to have used four hands today, kids, so get ready. On the third hand, like, we're, we're still dealing with shit that's been around for decades. And on the fourth hand, I am totally confident that we'll do it, which seems a bit odd and optimistic to me, but there's something over the last few years that tells me, it's looking like a, a point of intersection, that we've ignored a lot of this stuff for so long and moved on. That's why they call the Superfund cleanup site is a big thing with the EPA. They, there were these massive undertakings and mining operations and all kind of extraction operations that just took off and left all their shit behind. Tells you where their consciousness was at. And then these Superfund sites had to be go cleaned up. It takes taxpayer dollars to, do it, to restore it to its pristine, as best you can to its pristine state. So that's a, that's a consciousness or lack of consciousness act. But our consciousness on many levels is growing. It's not as growing, I don't think, as quick as the problems have mounted, but it's there. So the argument that's been had for decades is whether or not humans could have any kind of measurable impact on the planet because there's, we're just little humans. What could we possibly do? Oh, really? I come up with an F and list, but I'm not going to do that. One time I did come up with a list, actually. When I was going for my degree back in the early 90s, I went to school originally in 1977 in college, and I just basically drank beer and played football for a couple of years, and it got that didn't go well. And I got hurt in an electrical accident, went to the service, came back to school in 86, and I didn't even finish my degree till like 92, 91, 92, because I was got, got married, had a family, things like that. But I did finish it, and one of the requirements was for me to do an event, uh, almost like a thesis in, in application. And so I did an event in a, in a Northeastern Illinois University, my alma mater, in the uh, massive auditorium they have. There's a great space in place. And it was a balanced kind of thing where I would talk about, uh, you know, what's going on with the environment uh, from a more of a consciousness point of view, our responsibility or our ability to respond. And I can't remember the name of the guy I brought in. He was a recycling expert. Now, this is again in 92, when I think Chicago was trying something called the blue bag, which did not work. You take all your recyclables and put it in a blue bag, they'll pick that up. And I don't know what they did with it after that. Probably went to landfill, but at least we knew it was in the garbage. You know, it was landfill bag, it was a recycling bag. So I did this event, and, you know, I knew even back then that part of what I was going to do was continue to, quote, spread the message and the gospel of the planet and our place in it and our reliance and dependence on it. You don't think that we have any impact here? Uh, okay, well, get back to watch the Dancing with the Stars. We'll just clean up your mess after you. So <laughs> after the event, I had given out this kind of a list. There was a book back in the day, probably, I don't think it was in the 70s, but it might have been called 50 Things You Can Do to Save the Earth. And I used some of those off the list of the book. And after the talk, a woman came up to me. She goes, you know, this was really interesting, but um, I didn't like any of the suggestions you gave to clean up the earth, as it were. Do you have any other ones that I could consider? And I'm thinking to myself, if I got if you didn't like the nine I gave you, then go find the tenth on your own, sister. That's what I'm talking about: is consciousness, the unawareness of our dilemma and our difficulty. We are the only species on earth that intentionally corrodes its own life support system intentionally for money, for greed, for a lot of other things and have to deal with our own shit. It's like Chief Seattle said, 
If you continue to contaminate your bed, one night you will suffocate in your own waste. And so when this stuff gets removed from us, and that's, well, that's just an, the burning is over there in Ohio, zero concept, thought, awareness, or consciousness that we live in a freaking biosphere, kids. I learned this in fifth grade. We used to have terrariums. I love terrariums, like an aquarium, but terra firma. And we had these terrariums, and there's all kind of lizards and things and ferns and stuff in there. And, and you can see that how everything was dependent on everything else. And we're no different. It's just a really big biosphere. And it's, you know, the, the ozone layer that protects us from the sun's rays that is invisible, wraps us around. It's, we're living in this egg, this giant fishbowl, for lack of a better term. And many, many years ago, when it was discovered that CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, which were the propellants in air conditioning and things like that, were actually eating away the ozone layer, kind of like Pac-Man used to be chomping away up there. Uh, we did something about it. As, as a world, we did something about it. It's called the Montreal Protocol. We got everybody, for the most part, to sign off and say, we're not going to use these propellants anymore. Everybody signed off. Ronald Reagan was like one of the last ones because Maggie Thatcher, who was a scientist, had to go explain it to Ronnie. Now, Ronnie, here's the deal. If we don't get rid of these and the ozone layer derides itself and breaks down, we're going to have people more and more skin cancer because the UV rays are getting through. Well, Ronnie understood that because he had to have skin cancer removed twice. All of a sudden, wait a minute, now it affects me. It's not just the river over there burning, it's the river in my backyard. It's not people over in Australia who have skin cancer because the ozone is depleted. It's me. There's a problem now. That's how humans are. Until it's in your hip pocket or in your backyard, it's somebody else's problem. And speaking of backyards, it is the time of year, this early spring, where we start to clean up our yards and get all ready. And the commercials are just bombarding about having the perfect green lawn. Don't let anything grow there. Dandelions are bad. Not true. Dandelions aren't bad. So dumping fertilizers and insecticides and all kind of stuff to make your lawn perfectly green as astringent as possible is the American way. It's unfortunate. But more and more I'm seeing natural uh, landscapes, which is a good thing. We have a, a, just a small piece, maybe 35 feet, 40 feet on the side of our house that, uh, between the house and the fence where it's going to, we're just letting it grow back to what it was, weeds and all, and planting things there that the bees can, can get after and, and letting that be just a little bit of a sanctuary, just a small chunk of sanctuary. And that, that will matter in that little ecosystem. That's the thing that I can do. For decades, I've been on the radio hawking away at this stuff and, and pounding away at it and looking for ways to inform, educate, and inspire people to make some, to stop throwing shit out of the freaking car window. Like that would be the number one goal for me, that somebody's listening to this podcast and go, you know what? I'm not throwing shit out the window anymore. That's a huge win. That's a huge win. So that's kind of the basis of this podcast today, but I've also grabbed about 17 minutes of my conversation with Dr. Jane Goodall, the first lady of the environment, in my opinion. And uh, she is a, a wilderness warrior for sure. I got a chance to spend time with Dr. Jane a couple of years ago when she was here in Chicago. And the last couple of Earth Days, I've grabbed this clip because it needs to be heard again. It's like everything else. It, it, the, the news cycle washes this stuff down a toilet right out of the gate. So there'll be some celebrations about Earth Day today. And the next thing tomorrow, we'll be back with the Trump versus Biden shit as if that matters more. 
And to some people it does, which says a lot about where people are at. So here's the deal. I'm going to run a couple of Earth Matters with Bill Curtis clips in here. I have a couple more of myself filling in for Bill on Earth Matters. I have this Jane Goodall clip. And I'm going to wrap it up with a song that uh, my old pal John Denver did that does never got any airplay that I know of. But it really speaks to what's going on, that it's about time we, we start getting our act together and taking care of this stuff. Real quick, the Earth Matters series I created back in 09 at Harpo. I was doing a, a lot of different production pieces then for the Oprah Radio Channel. And I had created uh, Money Matters for Gene Chatsky and Health Matters for Dr. Oz. And I want to do an Earth Matters uh, one-minute vignette, as we call it, short-form program. But none of my hosts, I mean, who am I going to get to do that? We didn't have anybody there that this fell in line with. And one day, Bill Curtis was coming over to do, I think, Dr. Oz's show to talk about. At that time, Bill had the Tallgrass Beef Company, which was fantastic. And he was coming over to talk about that. Omega, you know, corn, not corn-fed, but these grass-fed beef and the, the, the benefits of that for the omega-3s. So, ah, Bill's a staunch environmentalist. He's got the best voice on the planet, maybe next to James Earl Jones and a couple other people. So he read three or four of them for me. I forgot about him for three years. Uh, I got a call from my buddy John Keith as Harpo was kind of closing down the radio portion of it. And said, what do you want me to do with these Earth Minutes? And I had totally forgot about them. So he sent them over to me. I listened. They were spectacular, mostly because of Bill's, obviously, uh, golden vocals. And we ended up, I think I wrote and produced 300 of these Earth Matters pieces. And they aired for three or four years in national and international syndication. And one of the great success stories of this comes from one of the ones we did about uh, polyethylene beads that were in scrubbing uh, you know, for scrubbing your face and things like that. And they were, once you scrub your face, these polyethylene beads never break down and they get washed right into the sewer where my dad's oil used to go. And they go out into the lakes, especially here in the Great Lakes, and fish are eating because they think they're fish eggs because that's what they look like. So there's a real good move, right? Let's get polyethylene beads to scrub our face because soap ain't good enough. We got to scrub it. Those beads make their way all the way through the system because they're too small to get caught by the strainers. And they ended up right out of the lake in a fish reading. Who eats the fish? Bueller? Anyone? Who eats the fish with polyethylene in them? <sighs> we do. So when that first aired, I had found that small story. I, I, I created a, a uh, Earth Matters with Bill Curtis around it. It aired a bunch of times all over the country. Some congressman heard it, and it worked his way up the food chain. One of the last things that President Obama did before he left office was sign a ban on polyethylene beads. Now here's two things. Anybody who was the manufacturer of polyethylene beads was pissed off. And going back in the day, whoever were the manufacturers of the chlorofluorocarbons was pissed off. So what? So what? Air conditioners still run, refrigeration still works. They found other less invasive ways to make it work. And, poly and the polyethylene beads on a facial scrub, now they have them like crushed up walnut husks or something. So. We can do this. It's a matter of consciousness, really. So I've had all these uh, Earth Matters sitting in my computer for, they ran from 2014 to 2017. And they are still as re relevant and uh, applicable today as they were when I wrote them for the most part. So what I do is run a couple of these in a row. It'll go right into the uh, Jane Goodall interview. And then you'll hear a couple more of those. A few more comments from yours truly, and we'll get you out of here. Over the past 150 years, one animal has had more of a negative impact on the planet than any other. 
From the Exxon oil spill in Alaska that bled 32 million gallons of crude oil into Prince William Sound, forever changing the landscape, to the 233,000 gallons of molasses that burst from a pipe and turned Honolulu Harbor into a wasteland, Human error has played havoc with the environment. Even with government policies in place, they are often ignored because the fines for violation are less than the cost of making ships safer or holding tanks for toxic waste more secure, as was the case in a recent spill in West Virginia. In every case, the cost long-term for cleaning up after a spill is far more than if the safeguards were put in place in the beginning. By the way, the Exxon Valdez spill was the 54th largest in history. Not even in the top 20. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. It may seem like a fad from the early days of the Green Movement, but the concept of reduce, reuse, and recycle goes back thousands of years. There is archaeological evidence that glass was recycled during the Byzantine Empire and that Romans recycled bronze coins into statues that were worth more than the money was originally. Before modern mass production, it was a common practice to reuse items as long as possible because it was cheaper in the long run. During the war years, every piece of scrap had value. Post-World War II, the new prosperity brought with it a glut of products that all of a sudden became disposable as America's mindset changed and the throwaway mentality became normal. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. It's pretty simple. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. I appreciate your time. I know you're very, very busy, and I'm just honored to spend a few minutes with you and help you any way that I can with the platform that I have to spread the message that's so very, very important. I hate to keep saying um, more important than ever, but it seems to be that way. I know. Hmm. I know it does. Yeah. So when you, when you look back all the way starting when you were 26 years old, way back in 1960, and you've seen the arc of your work and how it's impacted the world, what are the indicators that you look for that, you're, that we're having some progress as a species? Well, uh, there's definitely 100% um, greater awareness worldwide than there was when I began. But that's because when I began in 1960, um, we, didn't, you know, we didn't face the problems that we face today. So... The forests were not destroyed at that time. There's still the equatorial forest belt stretched across Africa. And, you know, so gradually people have become aware. And the biggest problem is that they become aware of the problems and then they don't help us to do anything about them so they do nothing and fall into apathy. That's the big danger. It really is. I, I think that the alarm bell has been sounded so many times that people are afraid to answer it and they don't know yeah. how and what to do. And I've always been a proponent that you have to do something somewhere. You may not be able to go to, uh, you know, uh, save the rainforest somewhere, but you can do something in your own backyard. And, and I think people need that reminder quite often. Do you find it, even though you travel the world now, and I don't know how you do it as much as you do it, 
the people that are responding, are you starting to see the apathy erode a little bit, or is it still an uphill battle? Well, you know, most of my work when I'm traveling around, other than spreading awareness further, is with young people. And our Roots and Shoots program, which began in 91, is now in well over 50 countries. Um, It's young people, kindergarten, university, and everything in between. And it's based on the fact that every individual makes um, a difference every single day. And those of us who are fortunate enough not to live in abject poverty, we can choose the kind of difference we're going to make. So, you know the saying, think globally, act locally. I twist it around because if you think globally, you become helpless with, with, with horror of what's going on around the world. But if you act locally, okay, something I'm passionate about, I'm going to um, clear the beach of leather, I'm going to clean up a river, I'm going to raise money or volunteer at a shelter for dogs or cats. I'm going to raise money for hurricane victims far away. And you roll up your sleeves and you take action. And then you realize that all around the world there are other people like you who care about the same issues, who are also rolling up their sleeves and making a difference. And then you you feel supported and strengthened by that feeling that you're not alone. Yes, I've always said, and I've been doing radio 23, 24 years now, and, and the content has always lent itself to trying to make sense out of the senseless. Because if you watch the news, none of this makes any sense. But when you pull away from the headlines and you get into the lifelines of people doing incredible work, that's where, where things could really change. Your work over the years almost has become all-encompassing. It started with the chimpanzees, of course, and, and shining a light on their plight and their existence. But now it's almost like uh, what Chief Seattle said. Actually, John Muir actually said it better, that if you tug on one thing in nature, you find that it's connected to everything else. Now it's very much all-encompassing. The chimpanzees are almost just a part of the puzzle, aren't they? Well, that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, the fact is that uh, it was 1986 when I'd been studying the chimps since 1960. And we had a conference right here in Chicago, and it was uh, the brainchild of Paul Helpney, who at that time was was um, director of the Academy of Sciences. And he brought together the people who were studying chimps in six different parts of Africa by then. And we had a session on conservation, and it was utterly shocking. I mean, it was a shock for everyone, I think, to see the forest disappearing the beginning of the bushmeat trade, the commercial hunting of, of animals for food, including chimps in some countries, shooting of mothers to steal babies for sale as pets or for the international animal trafficking. And we had another session on conditions in some captive situations, like the awful, awful treatment of chimpanzees and other animals in medical research and pharmaceutical mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. So... I went to the conference as a scientist. I had my PhD by then. I had a research station. The best days of my life out in the rainforest where you learn about the interconnectedness of everything and the important role that even the tiniest species plays. And I left as an activist. So since then, I haven't been more than three weeks in any one place. And mm. that's twice a year if I'm lucky. Mm. So, so, you know, so, so okay, Go. so then... Um, 
I felt I had to go to Africa. I needed to learn firsthand more about the plight of the chimps. And learning about the plight of the chimps, I learned about the plight of so many of the people living in and around um, forest chimpanzee habitat. The flying over Gombe, which had been part of that great equatorial forest belt, and seeing below me a tiny island of forest surrounded by completely bare hills. And more people than the land could support. Overused farmland, now infertile, steep slopes denuded of trees, terrible soil erosion, streams filtered up, people struggling to survive. And that's when it hit me. If we don't help the people, then there's no way we can even try to save forests and chimpanzees. For three years, I've created and produced a radio program with Bill Curtis, who's a noted conservationist, does A&E, and he's got one of the best voices on radio, so we, we put him to work. And, and one of the things that really tried to focus on were the, were the human aspects of this, because it seems that so much of what goes on with conservation, which is a very broad term, is dealing with the, with the effects, not the root cause. And when you get down to the root cause... When, when it comes down to poaching, for example, there are people trying to simply make money. There's this whole black market thing. And rhinos are my pet animal. I, I can't even believe eradicate a species because of their horn, which does nothing. You might as well chew on a toenail because it has the same properties. And you see these people that are in difficult circumstances. And as the rise of ecotourism and eco-vacations come up and people make money... There are some changes that happen, but we have a long way to go. So when, yeah. you're, when you're traveling around doing these fundraisers and you've seen the, and the crowds come, what is it they, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's one thing for Jane Goodall to go out and do all this great stuff, but do you think that if the people who are behind the, the bush meat trade and the poaching trade, can they be converted into human beings that could make a, a positive difference as well? Do you think so? Well, I, I, I don't know the people, the gang leaders, because it's now become... You know, it, it, it's big business. But what we can do, one, we can boost, we can help raise money so that the rangers on the ground are better equipped to deal with poachers. We can do education programs for, for the poachers, and yes, uh, we can provide jobs through ecotourism. But the other thing is the demand. So our Roots and Shoots program, the young people, it's in the countries like China and Vietnam and and um, Thailand, where the demand for these rhino horns and elephant tusks and pangolin scales is coming from. So we work on educating them and getting uh, getting the word out there. Elephants are being killed. Rhinos are being killed. And people often, you know, they think it all comes from animals who've died a natural death. There's a huge lack of understanding. So mm. we work on that end, both ends. It seems to be, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm 60. I feel young, but I'm not, I'm not young anymore. I still consider myself part of the solution and, and far less the problem. But it seems to be that you're focusing on these, the, the youth, because they're really the ones that have to make the change. I've always thought that unless it's, you know, affects me, then it's not, it's somebody else's problem. So it's great to hear about, you know, rhinos and and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's somebody that they would see that in a zoo, but actually doing something about it, that's out of most people's realm of possibility. But young people, what is the response you get when you do your Roots and Suit program and when you give them this information? How do they respond? Well, everywhere I've been in all these countries, <laughs> by the way, we're very strong in China. Mm. Um, the young people, once they understand the problem, we listen to them 
and empower them to act. They're out there making a difference. They're educating their parents and even their grandparents. And, you know, so working with the young people, why? Because you hear we haven't inherited this planet from our parents, we borrowed it from our children. But we haven't borrowed our children's future, we've stolen it. We're still stealing it. And it's time we get together in this little window of chance, time, little window of time that we have to make a difference. You've got to act together and we've got to try and harm some of the, you know, heal some of the harm we've inflicted before it's too late. And it will be too late. The uh, the species loss is is you know, record in, in the history of, of uh, just our short time as, as a species on this planet. And whenever I think of that, you know, there's there's always the deniers of things and people don't want to admit things. And I always, as you talk about apathy, I think denial follows right behind that. It's this uh, evil twin, which is denial and apathy. And it's just easy to dismiss things, even though there's this unbelievable amount of scientific evidence that all things are connected and what happens in one place eventually shows up somewhere else. You you know, they were monitoring what happened with the Fukushima reactor and within a certain amount of time, it's already, you know, affecting fish that eventually make it to the, you know, to our shores and all those type of things. And here in the United States, we like to argue about things, but do very little as far as solutions. When you come to the United States and when you're doing your fundraisers and you're talking with, with people, do you see us? Are we getting any better on this side of the water? Or are we still kind of stuck in our old ways? Do you think? Well, it, you know, some people are definitely changing, and they tell me so. I, you know, I know because people who come to listen to a lecture usually around five thousand. Sometimes it's a lot more, and the response is making everything worthwhile. You know, people are listening. People are crying. People come up and say, "Well, I'm going to do my bit now. Thank you." Young people are saying, you've taught me that because you did it, I can do it too. And so they're new, newly inspired. Uh, and, you know, we're planting trees and organic gardens and fighting the Monsantos. Um, and just really more and more and more people making a difference. We work in there's about 150,000 active groups of roots and shoots. And that the group can be a whole school. And also, we've got all the people who went through roots and shoots in school, like Chinese people come up and say, of course they care about the environment. We were in roots and shoots in primary school. Mm. So it is a changing attitude, but whether it's changing quick enough, that's, right. that's the burning question. One of the most difficult things uh, as a broadcaster, as a journalist, as someone who's written about this subject, and I've spoken about this for many years is is getting people to see that they are really connected to the planet that if you don't think you're connected to the planet just hold your breath for a few minutes and see what happens you know i mean we are inextricably we are just residents here we're not the landlords you know we don't own this place we're just passing through and 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 getting people off the headlines as i said and getting them out into the yard and out into the communities and planting trees and doing these things i've seen a marked difference even since 1970 from the first Earth Day. But I've also seen a greater pushback than I ever thought was possible from politics, from politicians, from the government, and those type of things. However, saying that, I think there's a gap in there somewhere that then the responsibility comes to we the people, that we shouldn't be, if the Environmental Protection Agency is not doing their job or they've been cut back or whatever the, the latest 
an unfortunately greatest scandal is with the EPA, that's a call to action for us as residents of our country here in the United States to actually do something. You've had to put up a lot of political stuff. I'm not going to say the word that I would use for normal people, but you've had to put up with a lot of politics. And, and how have you worked your way through some really difficult times with that? Well, what we, what we, what we try to do is say, you know, you can't actually fight those people in powerful positions. Certainly can't in China, you can't in, in Africa. And at least you're allowed to speak your mind here in the U.S., which is something. As we can't actually fight them, or we'll get, you know, disappeared or closed down or something. You have to work around them, and that's why working with the youth. So, yes, enough young people get to a tipping point, and when the dictators and the deniers finally age and disappear, then the young people coming up will have the right ethic and the right attitude. But that's why I say I don't know if we've got time. Mm. You sound cautiously optimistic. You've used that word time six times in this conversation. It's, do you think that most people, is, is it because you travel so much that your, your urgency is there because most of us don't? We're all distracted with the news and TV and all that other stuff. Have your travels given you a, a different sense of urgency over the last few years? A different sense of urgency, but also a different sense of hope. As you said earlier, there's so many incredible people and amazing projects. And the trouble is the news is nearly always about doom and gloom. And doom and gloom turns people off. So, you know, I try and share the positive stories, the hopeful stories, the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle what seems impossible and won't give up, the amazing brain that's beginning to come up with uh, new solutions to let, let us live in greater harmony with the planet. And... You know, the social media, which, yes, it can go wrong. We all know that. But it enables us to reach out in a way never possible before to bring together people from around the world who care about a single issue hmm. and you know, strengthen each other. So these, these are the things that give me hope and keep me going. The response to my talks in every country I've been in, you know, every single lecture is sold out. And... I've always said when you squeeze oranges, you get orange juice. And when you squeeze tomatoes, you get tomato juice. And when you squeeze humans, all kind of you know what comes out. And I think we are being squeezed as a species in ways we've never been squeezed before. So after all these years of work and traveling the world, what is the big takeaway? What is the big aha for you after all this time? Well, I think it's very, very important to understand that although chimpanzees and other animals are way more intelligent than we used to think, chimpanzees share 98.6% of our DNA composition. Now, they are our closest living relatives. They communicate in ways that we understand, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another. They have a dark and brutal side, but also a loving, compassionate side. And so, yes, we're so like them, but we're different. We've, uh, I think the main difference is the explosive development of our intellect. Quite clearly, we're the most intellectual species that's ever walked on this planet. And yet, we're destroying our only home. You know, we sent a rocket to Mars. 
little robots been taking photos. We've seen those photos. We don't want to go and live on Mars. And we only have planet Earth. So how come we're destroying it? And I think there's been a disconnect between our clever, clever brain and our human heart that's love and compassion. And we've fallen in the West anyway, and unfortunately it's spread around the world into a materialistic society. We've lost touch with nature. And always when there's an economic development like building a dam or a rapid transit or something like that, an environmentalist stand up and say, but you're going to destroy this this unique piece of, of uh, environment. But almost always, not always, but almost always, the, the um, developers that win and the environment is destroyed, that part of it. Mm. And, and so, you know, it's because we, we, we've sort of begun to worship money. We've lost touch with with reality, and instead of thinking about future generations, we're doing things for us now or for the next political campaign or for the next shareholders meeting, instead of thinking about the consequences for the next generation, for the future, for the future of the planet. And we're forgetting that without the environment, that's the end of us, the forest, give us clean air and water and absorb CO2 and they give out oxygen. The ocean's the same. We're polluting the ocean. We're destroying the forest. And the world's in a mess. But there is hope if we get together now for the reasons that I've already said. I I won't give up. And luckily there are many other people out there fighting for the same cause. There are hundreds and hundreds of small victories and bringing it all together, then, you know, we we have to make change. There's nothing else for it. We have to change. The number one cause of the eradication of rhinos is for their horn. Could a 3D printer save the species from extinction? In South Africa, poaching is at an all-time high. Poachers take an average of three animals a day, hacking their horn off with a chainsaw and selling it on the black market for consumption in Asian markets as a cure-all. Matthew Marcus thinks he can duplicate the ingredients found in that horn, which is basically hardened hair, with a three-dimensional printer creating a bio-identical product that would be sold outright in Asia and markets everywhere, thus ending the poaching for wild rhino horn. Skeptics point out that it's a long shot to get people to buy synthetic horn when the real deal is still available. But Marcus disagrees, and he says for a long time, technology has in some ways surpassed our humanity, and perhaps it's time to see if it can save a species. But the rhinos are running out of time. And in the meantime, another three rhinos will be slaughtered today for their horn. I'm John St. Augustine, and rhinos matter. Sometimes I think that the major challenge is we think we know everything because we have everything. I mean, this phone that's sitting here in front of me has more technology in it than the first lunar module. That's no shit. That's the truth. And this computer, even though it's 12 years old, my trusty Dusty Dell, you know, it's light years. 
kind of like Buzz Lightyear, light years ahead of the technology that was just 10 years ago when I bought it. Back then, it was the state of the art. Now it's obsolete. It still works. But now everything's gone past that. And that last one I did there about uh, the rhino, you know, I, what, Shark Week to me is just uh, shake my head. Um, I created Rhino Week on radio because of Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. When I was a young guy, you know, I saw Jaws probably 400 times, right? It's, it's still a great movie, stands up. But I remember the backlash against sharks when the movie came out. This is what humans do. They see a movie with a fake shark in it, and they go out and kill sharks because, you know, you never know you might get attacked in the middle of Kansas City. So the backlash was that 100 million sharks are taken out of the oceans every year for a myriad of reasons. A lot of them are just caught as a side product of catching other fish. The, the shark fin industry still exists, which is ridiculous, where they cut their fins off for soup and throw the animal back in. A hundred million. Sharks take about 12 people. Hardly balanced. And yet when there's a shark attack, it's, oh my God, this prehistoric beast is wreaking havoc. But we don't see the hundred million that are decimated. We don't see that on the news. We just see the shark att- another shark attack victim. So in all of that, Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, says he wished he never wrote the book because of the decimation of the shark species. That is a shift in awareness for a guy like Peter Benchley, who wrote the book off some of his experiences as a kid and a guy who caught a giant great white shark off Montauk, Long Island in 1964. And that's how the book came about, which became a movie, which then it turns, let's kill sharks. They're no good. And yet they're the apex predator in the sea and they keep things in balance and order. So we're messing around with stuff we really have no idea how it works because we're sitting here in our comfort zones, watching things on a television or on a, on a computer, and we're very removed from it. So I created this Rhino Week thing in, in, in deference to that because I'm glad that there is some, you know, awareness about sharks, and I think that, that that's good. Obviously, it's, hopefully it's, it's changing practices. But the whole Rhino Week thing, was it, it's beyond my comprehension. If there's like one thing, of all the stuff that goes on with the environment, everything contained in this biosphere, all the plants, animals, those that swim, crawl, walk, and fly, the water, all of it. It's this rhino thing. Somebody decided, hey, look at that rhino horn. Might give a guy a heart on. Let's kill him and grind it up. And that's how all this started, this Chinese medicine that has great value, but not that. There are some herbs and stuff that are fantastic. But killing a rhino for its horn which is nothing more than keratin, like your fingernails, and telling people it's magical and you can make money off it, to me is the greatest injury we've ever done to this planet, in my opinion. I'm very biased. I got rhino stuff everywhere in here. I don't get it. And that whole thing about when I read about the guy with the 3D printer can recreate it, well, can he he ever, I don't know if that's going to work 100% or not. But he's trying. He's making an attempt. That's a change in consciousness. So all of these things together, along with the conversation uh, that I had with Dr. Goodall, you know, reminds me of a couple things. Number one is, one of the great challenges is, Bill Curtis is going to do it. John's going to do it. Dr. Jane's going to do it. Jean-Michel Cousteau's going to do it. Put a list of, of people who are doing things on behalf of the planet. Well, they got that covered. They're, they're doing it. I don't have to do anything. Okay. The second part of it is, is worse, which is apathy. They got it all covered. There's nothing I can do. There's a difference between I'm not doing anything and I can't do anything. They're different. There is something you can do. I don't know what it is. You do. I mentioned earlier about that whole polyethylene bead thing 
we aired that and Bill was doing a speaking engagement not long after it aired nationally. I don't know where he was at talking to some big company. And the president of the company pulled him aside and said, Mr. Curtis, I really enjoy the Earth Matters. They, they're, they're a great awareness raising tool. Thank you so much. And because of the one that you performed with the polyethylene beads, I stopped using them and I'm just using a regular biodegradable soap. Now, on one hand, I'm thinking it took, I shouldn't have to write these. On the other hand, that's fantastic. That's fantastic that you switched from this when there was no consciousness except I wanted my face scrubbed to listening to information you didn't have before in short form. And then over here, you made a decision or a choice based off that to do something different. That is a change in consciousness. So I don't know who's listening to this today or where you're listening to this today. And if you're already out doing great stuff, thank you so much. We're not saving the planet, folks. We're saving our own ass. That's what it is. The planet will carry on. That whole, we got to say, I think that's part of the great challenge of the, of the argument. You got this, the earth, 4.5 billion years old. We've been here about 250,000 years. No contest. And yet we're, we're pushing things to the point where the sustainability for life for us is going to get in question more and more. So I don't have the tug of war conversations with people I used to about, but can't you see this? No, they can't. They can't. So to try and get someone who's blind to something to see it, I, especially in an argument or a conversation, I've never seen it work. You ever get into an argument with somebody go, I totally see your point. You're right. That's rare. So when it comes to these environmental issues and challenges we face, I hold with what my old pal John Denver used to say is, find the one thing you can do and just go do that. Leave the, And if other people do things, then they do that. And like the lady who went from facial scrubs with polyethylene beads to a good biodegradable soap, that's a win. And so wherever you're at today on this Earth Day, maybe just look for a small win. Pick up a piece of paper. It matters. That's a consciousness shift. You're at least more aware than you were before that. And if all comes together in a certain way, shape, or form, meaning, you know, I watch the, the from the peripheral, I watch the weather, how these patterns have changed. And again, if you don't want to see it, you can't. But it's obvious to this reporter that this biosphere is shifting. And we're the only creature on the earth that is responsible for that. If we've done it, we can undo it. But it takes not a political will, the popular will. And when enough shit hits the fan, maybe we'll turn the fan off. We'll see. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. There's a full moon over India and Gandhi lives again. And who's to say you have to lose for someone else to win? In the eyes of all the people, look as much the same. For the first is just the last one. When you play a deadly game, it's about time we realize it. We're all in this together. It's about time we find out. It's all of us or none. It's about time we recognize it. These changes in the weather. It's about time. It's about changes. And it's about time. There's a light in the Vatican window 
for all the world to see. And a voice cries in the wilderness, sometimes he speaks for me. I suppose I love him most of all when he kneels to kiss the land. With his lips upon our mother's breast, he makes his strongest stand. It's about time we start to see it. The earth is our only home. It's about time we start to face it. We can't make it here on our own. It's about time we start to listen to the voices in the wind. It's about time, it's about changes, and it's about time. There's a man who is my brother, I just don't know his name, but I know his home and family, because I know we feel the same, and it hurts me when he's hungry, and when his children cry. I too am a father, and that little one is mine, it's about time we begin it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Very much.